we'll get going here. If you want to come forward, find a seat, make it feel intimate. Barry, you're so far back there. I can almost see you hiding in the back row. Oh, Bob's even further, Bob. <laughs> the farthest back. No, Kelly is. Kelly, come on. In or out, in or out. Good morning. Good to see you all. I don't know what to do. I need... Yeah, that would be good. Preach into the choir. It's the <laughs> no. uh, well, let's pray. We'll get going this morning. Thanks for being here. Um, we have a number of, it feels like the last couple of weeks we've had, you never know who's going to be here. Our worship leader's sick. Other people are sick. You know, we got, it creates excitement and trust in God, not anything else. Okay, let's do pray. Father God, we do thank you this morning that we are able to gather, uh, to study your word, to gather with one another and just think of uh, the goodness of the gospel, the goodness of all the things that you've called us to, you've equipped us for. Lord, we pray even this morning as we study your word, Lord, would you keep us humble as we learn things about you? And Lord, would you also help us to see more of your glory? Lord, help us uh, to look at our lives through a lens of the gospel, to be able to see these things as you intended us to see them, to encourage one another, to challenge one another. Uh, Lord, even as we think through these things, uh, as there are things that are unclear, uh, Lord, we pray for your Holy Spirit to help us with these, to help us to return to them, to come back. So, Lord, we thank you for all that you've given to us in your word. Oftentimes we can take these things for granted uh, thinking that these are just script scriptures and texts that um, we deserve. And yet, Lord, you have been so gracious to us to allow us to see the things that you have done for us, allow us to understand these things. So, Lord, we praise you and thank you even this morning as we gather. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, it's good to see you all. Uh, we're continuing on with our study of Galatians. And so as many of you have been here for several weeks, this is a rich book really focused in on kind of some of these rich ideas in the gospel, uh, focusing in on what does what is our justification found in? What does our union with Christ or our being united with Christ in our baptism look like? All these things that uh, we often just bump into over and over in the Christian life now are kind of brought to bear in this one book. And so it's a very rich book in the sense of what is the gospel kind of rooted in, uh, but it also kind of addresses it in a way um, that's kind of unusual for us because we're used to books that kind of push back against the immorality of culture. And as we've talked about, I mean, there's different gutters we can fall into, one of them being immorality, to turn away from God, to say, I don't care what you want me to do, I'm going to do what I want to do. But then there's other books that actually address the false religion of morality, to say, I can do it, I just need a little maybe nudge from God, but it's really possible for me to get there on my own. And Galatians starts to push back on that edge of the spectrum, to start to say, what is the gospel founded in? If we are to look at the gospel, how is it actually giving us a straight way to walk between those two gutters? So Galatians is helpful in that because we don't often think in those terms. We, we think of, oh, the world is way worse than it used to be and we need to protect ourselves against that. But we often don't think of the own idols that we can create in our own hearts when they are related to our works, our abilities, the things we know that we can do. Um, and so here in Galatians, we're going to be looking at chapter 4. We've just finished in verse 7, this idea of being children of God, in which we can cry, Abba, Father. We are in that type of relationship with God. Um, something that we have come to assume, really, but this is really just stark and astounding language that we have a relationship with God that is not he is just a distant deity, but he is our father. You know, you think of that type of relationship with our God when you would have probably had a very different perspective of God if you were worshiping in the temple thinking, I cannot walk near this God or he will strike me dead because of my sin. And now the Apostle Paul is saying, now we cry, Abba, Father. I mean, that's pretty striking 
if you think of it in that context, it's really actually quite amazing that we have that type of relationship with an almighty, all-powerful God, that intimate of a relationship. And so now we are coming back in verse 8, and the Apostle Paul is going to set up a couple of contrasts for us that I'd like to look at. One of them, you'll see these two at the top of your sheet if you have one. If not, there's some handouts here. Um, but it's this idea of faith and religion as a contrast and being able to see what is the difference between faith in God and religion or religiosity. Just holding to certain things and knowing the things you're supposed to do. And then this other contrast being this idea of ministry is something we understand, but then he starts to paint a little bit of a contrast of what does gospel ministry look like as opposed to worldly ministry. And so these are important contrasts for us to get our minds around. And the, the Apostle Paul, as he's laying out the gospel, one of the things he starts to mention is that he has this fear that we might not get this, that we might not understand what these contrasts are. In verse 11, he talks about that he has a fear of it, and he is even perplexed. He's like, I don't understand how you're missing this. In fact, it seems like you understood it. It seems very clear. It seems like you're, you have a good grasp on the gospel, but he's kind of coming back to it and saying, I, I want to make sure you see these things. And so he kind of sets them up again. So firstly, that, that contrast of faith and religion, we're going to look at it in terms of idolatry because of the way he talks about it. So let's just read that section, verses 8 through 11. It's on your sheet or if you have your Bibles there. Does someone want to read that? Real quick. Yeah, go ahead, Kevin. So you hear this picture here. He's saying, I've labored over you. I've presented the gospel to you in, in clear terms. And you start to hear this, this language that uh, is fairly familiar when we think of idolatry. He says, you were enslaved to those that by nature were not gods. You were enslaved to them. This is the language of idolatry, of things that keep us captive. And so the cause of idolatry, this is one of your blanks there, the, the cause of idolatry then we start to see is things we think we need to fulfill ourselves. And so we have these things we think we need to fulfill ourselves, and all of a sudden we are enslaved by them. He's saying we're going back to these things, being enslaved by them. And it seems as in verse 8 to 11 that you read this, and you're like, it seems like the Galatians are heading back into like maybe their pagan lifestyles, like because he's talking about being enslaved. But if you think of the, the context of where he's talking about, he's talking about not adopting biblical legalism. These seasons, these times, all the things of the Mosaic law, they are becoming enslaved to these things. So all of a sudden we start to scratch our head and say, this doesn't sound like our normal terms of idolatry. What is going on? How can I become enslaved in a similar way that I was to an idol, to the law. So there's this argument the Apostle Paul is making that the irreligious person who is enslaved to idols is also possible in the religious world. And w this is something that's important for us to know because we don't often even consider that as a possibility. To be enslaved to anything is to worship it as if it were a god. So the things of this world, he says, are weak. They're miserable, verse 9. Even the idols are not real, we remember. They're, they're things of this world. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, you know, the Apostle Paul starts to talk about these things. He says, these are just, I mean, they're, it's like you literally take a lump of wood, you make it into an idol, and you worship it. How silly is that? He says this is very, very silly. In fact, it makes no sense at all. It's just worshiping the created things rather than the creator. Like you <laughs> are worshiping something in God's creation. It's, 
It's nonsense. And yet it can enslave you. But then in 1 Corinthians, he goes on to say, what happens to this? He says, we, uh, we look at these things in a very different way when we understand this. He says, the sacrifices of pagans are offered to demons. So even though it is worthless, there's something about this that is very spiritual, very real. And you are not just free to do whatever you want, even though it seemed like these things might provide something for you. It is actually much worse than that. You are becoming enslaved to them. And so in a similar way, we can turn back to the elementary principles of this world for worship. So again, we worship these things we think we need to fulfill ourselves. This is kind of a strange idea. Uh, Martin Luther uh, had a quote as we reflect about how do we turn things into a god? How do we start to take something and make it in this place of a god? How do we turn this way? Here's this quote. He says, what is it to have a god? Or what is one's god? Answer, to whatever we look for, uh, to what whatever we look for, any good thing and for refuge in every need that is what is meant by god. Many person many a person imagines he has a god. And then everything he needs is provided for, his money, his property. The evidence for this appears when people are arrogant, secure, and proud because of such possessions, but desperate when they lack them or lose them. I repeat, to have a God means to have something in which one's heart depends entirely. Is your heart attached to and does it rely on something else from which you hope to receive more good and more help than from God? So if you read it in that context, you can see, well, certainly I can look to job security. I can look to even family. I can look to things of this world. And the way they worshipped pagan idols, they would have been looking and saying, let's worship a certain god for satisfaction, maybe pleasure. Let's worship a certain god just so that our crops would grow. Let's worship a certain god so that all these things that oftentimes we find ourselves running after in different ways as well, but we can say, if justification is a deep need of my soul in the religious world to stand justified before my peers and before God, then we say, okay, I have a need. Now how am I going to fulfill that need? And the religious people really recognized they had a deep need with their situation before God. And you recognize, okay, you might have got the need right, but where did you go to fill it? And you start to realize, like, man, there's an ability, even within that statement right there, to go and make idols, to make something else to fulfill the need only God can fulfill. And it's not something that should cause us fear, but to recognize what we're doing, to say, man, I am able to turn to the law and say, God, I want to stand right with you, but I'm going to put this pressure on this law, on myself to do these things in which... I might make myself right. So, when we think of some of these things, I'd love to just interact with you a little bit on this. How do you yeah, engage with this idea of righteousness? Is it possible to turn something like our works? And you start to put it into categories of, and you have to remember, this doesn't mean that things that we worship as ultimate things, like even in idol worship, you know, wanting to work hard is not an evil thing, but to serve it as an idol becomes an evil thing. So similarly, in our religious circles, how does this happen? Do you see this happen? Is this, is, is the Apostle Paul pushing too hard here, or is even Martin Luther pushing too hard when we talk about religious things? How do you guys process that, turning those into idols? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. It's like an unaudible, like, <laughs> little interaction you just had with yourself, God, the people around you. Yeah. Yeah, Kevin.
right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. No, yeah, that idea of like building a legacy. Um like there's a lot of good things wrapped up in that. I remember even uh, Emily's great great grandmother or some someone back in uh, her family set up this massive trust fund for all the grandkids that they could all go to college, uh, and it pulls from this trust fund. You're like, man, that's a fantastic legacy. And so like there's a lot of good. I mean, how how awesome is that? You know, I like I <laughs> scrimped and saved to make my way through college, and I'm a little bitter about this whole thing, but. <laughs> Like I suffered, uh, but at the same time, there's there's something good there. But uh, that's a hard thing to do, in humility. It's hard, yeah. Uh, yeah, Marissa. Yeah. Yeah, no motivation is is huge. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that is a fascinating phrase. Like, the difference between trying to, like, attain knowledge of God versus being known by God. I mean, that is, uh, that is, like, <laughs> that is a life-changing verse if you are able to really get your mind around it. Lee, yeah. Hmm. Receive something, yeah, right, yeah. Gospel messages, <laughs> challenging uh, more than we'd like to admit. Uh, there's something that's kind of frustrating about this. I think uh, if we're able to admit it, like it's like, okay, do the things God's called you to, but you can sin there too. A- and I, I don't know about you, but like it's like, okay, I, c- I can put to death like. My immorality, I'm ready to do that. Let's like kill that all day long. And then it's like I'm pursuing God's law, which I just heard a couple weeks ago. Like I should rejoice like David in God's law. And now it's like my sin is here too. Like I don't know about you guys. There's something that's a little bit frustrating of like I can be running as hard as I want towards God and still find my sin. Like just as present here. 
waiting for me, like making an idol even out of the thing God made for me that was good. <laughs> Just like everything else I make an idol out of. Yeah. Or yeah, J Janet. <laughs> Probably a good place to be. <laughs> uh, yeah. Hmm. So I think this is one of the areas we start to see, I mean, the gospel really starts to be fleshed out of the, the continual nature of the presence of the gospel. What is the gospel? God died for you so that you didn't have to die. He was resurrected so that you might live with God. Like there are all these things of God did these things for you. And so, I mean, this is good news for us. It's not a, a list of commands all of a sudden of here's the right way to live. It includes <laughs> some of the right way to live, but it's like good news. It's not kind of a how-to instruction booklet. And without the gospel, I think we fall back into, regardless of the category, uh, where we would put it. It wouldn't matter if we created a whole new system. Like we'd fall back into the slavery I think we have to recognize that because it can get very frustrating if you say, I'm doing the right thing, God. Why am I now a slave to this thing? Like I was just a slave to immorality. Now I'm a slave to your law. And all of a sudden we're shocked by it and frustrated of like, I'm just, you know, to your point, I'm just not going to do anything today because apparently every, everywhere I step, I'm stepping on <laughs> a Lego, so to speak. <laughs> ow, ow. And it can get kind of uh, irritating to some extent. Uh, think of the, the prodigal son, Luke 15. A lot of Jesus' parables help us to think through some of these tensions. And one of the things about the prodigal son, you guys know the story, the elder son runs off and he's just completely debased in his immorality, running off squandering all of his inheritance, you know, uh, just completely obstinate about everything he wants and doesn't care about his father, all the things he's done for him. But then he, I mean, it's pretty stinking apparent to him when he's at the bottom of the pit. Like the reader understands it. He understands it. The father understands it. Like there's no question in your mind this guy's position. You're like, that, that part's clear. And he comes back and he's like, I deserve nothing. And the father welcomes him in readily. The elder son, on the other hand, is standing there, and it, his sin is actually much harder to deal with because he's like, I've done the right stuff. <laughs> I've been here. I didn't squander. I earned this. And the story ends in a rather sobering place, and you start to realize why the Apostle Paul says, I'm afraid for you. Because the elder son, at the end of the story, doesn't resolve it. He's still outside. He's still standing out there. And you recognize this, this sin of pride and the sin of I can do it and I can earn justification with God is actually much, much more dangerous because it's harder to see. And so you look at it in our own hearts and if we don't learn how to see it, the Apostle Paul says, I'm afraid that you're missing the gospel if you're going to run after these things. I'm, I'm afraid for you because you stand outside of so close <laughs> to the kingdom of God, but the younger son walks right in because he repents, and the elder son's standing out there saying, I don't get it. Why does he get to go in? You know, <laughs> don't you see what he did? So the antidote to idolatry, and this points to what Emily was talking about in that verse, the assurance of being known. So if there is a problem of idolatry, we need, there are these things we think we need to fulfill ourselves. The antidote then would be the assurance of being known. 
that's kind of a another like frustrating like what do I do? <laughs> what do I do? <laughs> it's like, well, God has done it for you. Actually, and that frees us from idolatry. It doesn't mean there's nothing to that God has allowed us to do, but uh, it completely changes the context of what we're doing and why we do it and the motivation for it. So the Apostle Paul is pointing the Galatians back to a right relationship with the Father. Remember, he just came out of this context saying, Abba, Father. And there's this relationship that you have with your parents that is not predicated on any works. And that's this relationship that's actually completely unique that, you know, with your kids, you say, go clean your room. And it's not a, if you clean your room, you, be you become a cherished son, the better son, the and the ones who don't clean the room all of a sudden become unsunned, <laughs> removed from the family. Like there's this language that we start to understand and it is practical and helpful if we allow it to be, to say, I am a son, the assurance of being known. It starts to say, like, what do you need to be a son? You don't need anything. The assurance of being known, that starts to heal us from the plague of idolatry. So what makes a person a Christian, this is on your handouts, what makes a person a Christian is not so much your knowing God, but it his, his knowing of you. And that is an antidote to our idolatry. Richard Lovelace um, starts to frame this, I think, in a helpful way. And so I'll just read this quote from him. Uh, he's a professor and author, uh, and he, he just some of the way he brings this out just was, I thought, particularly helpful in this context. He says, Christians who are no longer sure that God loves and accepts them in Jesus, apart from their present spiritual achievements are subconsciously radically insecure persons, much less secure than non-Christians because of the constant bulletins they receive from their Christian environment about the holiness of God and the righteousness they are supposed to have. Their insecurity shows itself in pride, a fierce defensive assertion of their own righteousness and defensive criticism of others. They cling desperately through legal, pharisaical righteousness, but envy and jealousy and other sin grow out of their fundamental insecurity. So you recognize, like, you are told you are holy, you are righteous, you are good. Do these things and you will become more holy. And there is this kind of this inability to rest under who God has made you. And one of the things we start to recognize is we don't need to make ourselves lovable. This is really central to Christianity. We don't need to make ourselves lovable. We say this all the time, especially to people who are on the outside, and we say, no, come as you are. <laughs> you don't need to make yourself lovable before you come to God and the gospel. And yet at some point, there's a subtle shift to say, well, I've been with God for a while, and I should be more lovable by now. I should be more righteous by now. This is why we then turn to different idols, because we feel this pressure of, well, I should be, so then I want satisfaction through my work, I want satisfaction through my family, I want a certain kind of general status to the way things look. And there are certainly good things about all of these things. All the things God has called us to in his law, they are good. The psalmist rejoices over them. That says, "These, I love your law. I rejoice in your law. But you turn something that God has made good and you make it an ultimate thing that starts to give you value, identity. And all of a sudden it's turned into an idol. And we are, as many theologians and pastors often say, we are idol factories. We know how to make these things. R.C. Sproul, I think, rightly and says this well, and this is something I've seen him say often uh, and him quoted often in this. He says, we are secure not because we hold tightly to Jesus, be but because he holds tightly to us. And that gets at the heart of kind of the security that we live in. 
oftentimes we think, you know, I have this theology that trusts in the sovereignty and control of God, and yet I act as if he's not really sovereign and in control of these things. And it's one of those things I think we have to constantly come back to. Who are you in Christ? Now go do. (laughs) Who are you in Christ? Now go do. So that's the one contrast of thinking through, you know, how do we live in relationship uh, to God and religion in the gospel? Like, How do we operate within this system of religion and not let the religion or the system and the rules of our religion become an idol in and of themselves? That's one contrast the Apostle Paul wants to make very, very clear to us of the gospel is the gospel. Don't allow yourself to create an idol here. But then the other thing he starts to talk about, of um, just as a contrast of what does ministry, gospel-centered ministry, look like versus worldly ministry? This is another contrast we don't often think about. Uh, We see it a lot. Uh, We can see it probably even in our own hearts at times, if we're honest with ourselves, of these desires that he starts to highlight here. But there is something we need to know the difference about. Of What are we doing in the gospel? What are we trying to proclaim? What are we trying to build? So this is the last half of this section, uh, verses 12 to 20. Does someone want to read that as we kind of dive into this portion? It's on the handout there if you don't have a Bible with you as well. Go ahead, Kevin. Yeah, so the Apostle Paul finds himself perplexed mostly because he's looking at the ministry of the gospel. What is it we're called to? What is it that he's been about? And what is it that he's seeing and hearing? He says, very confusing because gospel ministry looks very, very different from some of the things we've been dealing with in this Galatian church. And so he's starting to highlight this difference. And it's helpful for us to see as we head into something that is building a message and a ministry that like we shouldn't even recognize and he's saying i'm i'm confused <laughs> because this is not what we've been working on so gospel ministry first as he starts to pull this apart ultimately we should know that this reflects christ gospel ministry should always reflect christ point to christ be about christ and his work so three things that we'll pull out of this here so gospel ministry firstly i think we see it is flexible to a cultural situation. doesn't mean it's squishy or changes, but it is flexible. He says, I became like you in verse 12. I became like you. Uh, the, the message didn't change, but he's entering in with them. Works, righteousness, mindset. We think of what this is in, in ministry. He's saying, you must do these things. What does that say? very inflexible it says come to me <laughs> come to me so it's like once you change you can come in once you change you come you come in but what did jesus do this is reflecting christ jesus in the incarnation one of the most wonderful doctrines we have and we hold to jesus left where he was seated on the throne at the right hand <laughs> of the father i mean jesus left this wonderful place And he enters in and was very flexible for us. He became like us. The Apostle Paul says, I am modeling that. I became like you. I entered in with you. 
So gospel ministry becomes very flexible. It doesn't change the requirements of what God's law has, but it is very flexible in that sense. It doesn't say you need to change. And it also doesn't say there is no requirement that the law has of you. The gospel enters in and says, you are sinners. <laughs> but I'm right here with you telling you that, you know. I'm walking with you through this. So this is a very unique thing. It's not a kind of a liberal view of Scripture that says truth doesn't matter, but it does enter in. So this is uh, just fairly striking, I think, as you think of how we do ministry. What does gospel-centered ministry look like? On the one side, it would say, if we're thinking of gutters, and just kind of pulling out of just the context of uh, legalism, we say, okay, on the one side, there is a danger of just changing the message altogether. We're saying, let's, let's actually be flexible in our messaging. Say the let's make the gospel whatever you want it to be. You know, you, wa you want <laughs> God to love you just the way you are and you don't have to change, great. You just, no problem there. Like, we'll change the message. And this is where we talk about theological liberalism that actually says the truth of God's word is relative. And that's a very different thing. And then the flip side says, we can't be near you because of your sin. <laughs> and this is the, the far other extreme to say, we're very inflexible. This is what the Apostle Paul is talking about. Like, I became like you doesn't mean I changed my message for you. What do you think? Have you seen those contrasts? Have you seen others when we think of gospel ministry being flexible? Is that something that resonates with what sounds like the gospel, what you'd expect of it? Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah, I mean, that's like a great commission. <laughs> so it should sound familiar to us to say we're no longer the chosen people set aside. It's like God completed that work, and now he says go. <laughs> like all of a sudden this expansion gets really big of like, oh, we're to go in to the Gentile world. And I'm thankful it did come into the Gentile world personally. <laughs> Selfishly. Yeah. Any other thoughts as you think about that? Hmm. Yeah, right. Maybe a low bar, but there's still like to, to enter, but there's still like requirements if you want anything, which is very different from the gospel message. So that, that phrase, I became like you, and that's something we should recognize. That is modeling Christ, that is reflecting Christ, that is something that we become disciples and make disciples. Like we should always be not saying become like me in the sense that I am the end. Uh, that, that's a very different message, but I became like you. That's, that's a, a little strange. Yeah.
pretty narrow road once you get there, but he's I'm going to come and tell every single person about it. Uh, yeah, yeah. So we can easily mishear that language between this verse and uh, Romans 9, like, yeah, or 1 Corinthians 9, yeah. So, so I think first that we see it's flexible to the cultural situation. Secondly, uh, I think we also see it's open and transparent. Um, it's open and transparent. He says, become like me. So I, I became like you, now become like me. Uh, and you start to think of like, well how do you become like the Apostle Paul? Well, you have to know him well enough <laughs> to become like him. You have to be able to see like the way he engages with God, the way he engages with sin, the way he prays, the way he acts in his life. He's saying, come into my life with me. This is discipleship. It's kind of like walk with me through life. See the way that I make decisions. See the way that I operate on a daily basis. It's not like say, you come like me, but I'm going to stay <laughs> in my house on the other end of the courtyard. You never get to come in. No, he's saying, I'm going to come live around you. I'm going to be with you, but I want you to become like me, like model this. There is a certain level of being known, and you think of self-righteousness, what does it often want to do? It often wants to say, I want to keep you at enough of a distance that you might keep your preconceived notions about my perfection. <laughs> You know, that, that's pretty easy to do, to kind of build kind of a facade. But you start to, I mean, you go stay two weeks with anyone, <laughs> like, you're going to know a whole lot more about them. Like, you have someone come stay in your home, you're like, oh, man, this is really stressful. Why is it stressful? Well, it's really stressful because they see the mess. They see, like, all the interactions you have with your kids. They see the way that you and your wife or you and your spouse would talk. They see the way that you make meals. They see the way that you, how often you clean the bathrooms. I mean, they see all of it, the nitty-gritty. It's like, become like me. It's like, man, that's kind of a humbling <laughs> statement in and of itself for the Apostle Paul to say, like, I want you to come in, an invitation. So he's heading in, but he's saying, I want you to come in as well. So this is what gospel ministry starts to look like, and it's... Uh, it's messy, <laughs> and it kind of causes a little bit of anxiety and fear in our own hearts of, like, we have a million reasons why we don't want discipleship to look like that, and I do, too. Like, <laughs> on some level, this is, like, this is, like, the picture of the gospel, like, to be fully known and to fully know other people. Like, that, that's what heaven feels like. So we do have to recognize, like, yeah, I'm finite. The Lord is still working in me, like, I may not be ready to do this to the full degree. It doesn't mean we all have to, like, sell our homes and live in a commune together. Like, all right, day one, we're getting there. <laughs> it's like, you know, th there is a goal here, but it is hard. We have to recognize that. Um, you just think of that in a contrast of uh, just the world. And oftentimes we, we see kind of pictures of celebrities like this. You know, we can find this in, in the church as well, celebrity figures. But, um, like, one of the, th the phrases you often hear when people meet a celebrity is like, wow, they're like a human. <laughs> they're like a real person. Uh, and, like, celebrities will even talk about this. Like, I mean, they talk to me, and, like, they're always baffled by the fact that I'm just a person. Like, I put on my pants just like everyone else does, one leg at a time. <laughs> and you're like, but they've created that facade of, like, I am great. I'm a movie star. And oftentimes, there's a temptation even in the church to kind of create that distance to say, you know, you might have some people see great things about you and you kind of want to roll with it. Like, all right, let's <laughs> see how far we can take this. How yeah, I mean, if <laughs> you know, th these things that we wrestle with in our sin nature are not usually very explicit. It's not like we go out and say, I want to be great. Uh, but we can tend to do these things. And there is a self-evaluation of ourselves to say, Lord, how do I deal with these? How can you help me work on these? So gospel ministry um, is transparent. And thirdly, it looks for opportunities in hardship. It looks for opportunities in hardship.
Um, you start to recognize, like, you look at the difficulties of ministry and life, and one of the things uh, that we we start to feel is like, God, would you change my situation? Um, the Apostle Paul would regularly say, like, you know, there is blessing that comes through hardship. The ministry of the gospel starts to recognize we're not looking to change your situation. Oftentimes he would even speak to slaves in their situation, and he's saying, like, we, we <laughs> like we're hoping that you can be a good slave. You're like, what in the world? Like, that's not... That's not what I expected to hear. And I don't think that is justifying slavery in the slightest. But he is looking at a situation to say, God asked you to become like him, become like me in my suffering, in my imprisonment, in my difficulty. Come with me into this, this area of suffering. And it's starting to look for opportunity here. And God does not bless Christians by removing their suffering. This is our theology of suffering, to say, like, Lord, would you please just take the situation away? How easy is it to pray that prayer to say, like, Lord, would you just make the situation go away? And yet God would often use suffering in our life to start to shape and form us and also to proclaim the gospel not to say the long-term goal is suffering. Like, we have to recognize suffering is a result of sin in this world. Suffering is a result of our disobedience to God. But we look at suffering and we say, man, the Lord is using it for his redemptive purposes. And this is gospel ministry, to, to, to learn how to say, in the midst of my suffering, I would glorify God. Not, Lord, once you take it away, then I'll be able to glorify you. That's a pretty stark contrast to uh, what we expect here. So two quick thoughts as we're closing here, just on worldly ministry. Uh, and one would be when we're doing worldly ministry, when we see it, it's doing ministry to win salvation. And the Apostle Paul says, they make much of you for no good purpose kind of you get this idea of like they want to build up their status and esteem. I've got another people I've person I've won over, I've got another. We can start to build this up and it's not for the purpose of the gospel, but it's just for the purpose of I gained a following. I've gained more people behind me and it's selfishly motivated. And you start to hear the apostle Paul also say, so firstly it does ministry to win salvation for themselves, but they need people to need them. They make much of themselves. I need you to need me in ministry. And you, you see this oftentimes in ministry of like, you know, I must be essential in this ministry, otherwise it's not valuable at all. And we have to be very, very careful of that, that we don't make much of ourselves in the things we do. I mean, this is constantly something, and the Apostle Paul would regularly say, like, follow me, the way I follow Christ, but I don't think he found himself to be essential to it. He was a servant saying, as soon as you <laughs> can do it, I want you to do ministry as well. I want to turn you around to do these things. And so these, these types of things often are focused on our own sense of self-worth. Of It goes back to that picture of idolatry. Ministry that's built on building ourselves up. Ministry that's built on Saying, I need to be made much of. I need you to need me. I need you to have me in this ministry. And uh, all these things are easily, easily shrouded. And so these are things that oftentimes we have to get down to our heart. But we have to also recognize uh, when we see it, what do you do with it? You don't it's, it's difficult to know exactly what to do with it. But uh, we oftentimes try and push people back towards gospel ministry. You know, I don't think we have to run around playing heretic <laughs> uh, police, like, <laughs> you, <laughs> how dare you do this? But there is a sense in which we desire this for ourselves, that we don't desire to be made much of. We don't desire everyone to just come around and surround us, but we lift one another up and start to see the fruits of the Spirit 
gospel-centered ministry versus uh, the other. So with that, I think we're at time. So there's a bit more we could reflect on there, just thinking of what does worldly ministry look like, but uh, another time. So thanks for coming this morning. Let's do pray, and we'll wrap up. Father God, we do thank you for just the opportunity to begin to think this morning about, Lord, how you would help us to reflect on the the richness of what the gospel means for us, of our position before you as children of God, to be able to be freed from idolatry, to be able to live in a free state to serve you, Lord. Uh, This is often very humbling work for us to start to look at our own hearts and to see those areas which do run after idols, which do run after our own self-worth to build ourselves up rather than to receive our identity from you. Lord, the gospel is something that is far too good of news for us to even believe. So Lord, would you help us to believe these things, to trust them, to turn to them, to encourage one another in these things. Lord, we praise you because these things are true. We worship you because of this. So Lord, help us even today as we continue on in all that you've called us to be and do. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, thank you guys.